So I think it starts from the top. That's a cliche, but it's very, very true in the sustainable business world. So I think like anything, if you have that type of ethos and you believe in taking care of your stakeholders, you believe in taking care of the environment and so on, then you will build a business that does that because it's a very high priority and a high value for your business. I'm Ravi Chidambaram, and you are listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running two ventures, GUT, Double G, U, Double T, and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, double G-U-double-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Ravi Shidambaram. He has over three decades of experience in the telecom and investment banking industries, of which 17 as an entrepreneur. He has held senior positions at Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, to name a few. He was born in India, raised in the United States, and resident for considerable periods of time in Brazil, England, Germany, and Singapore, and is fluent in four languages. He's particularly known for his pioneering expertise in emerging market, telecom privatization, and mobile license auctions, and has completed numerous transactions, aggregating billions of dollars. He's a man of many talents, a musician and composer, also active in various areas, including arts, where he serves on the advisory board of the Singapore Foundation for the Arts and has taught at the Wharton Graduate School of Business, Yale University, and Singapore Management University. Having said this, Ravi identified a gap, being in the corporate world for many years, understanding the mindset and what the world needs today. He's been active in putting ethical and sustainable business at the forefront of his work, not only talking about it, but also built a platform called RIM, R-I-M-M, that helps startups evaluate their scores to do good. Ravi, it's a pleasure having you here. And I want to kick this off by saying that you've identified a gap being in the corporate world for many years, understanding the mindset and what, what the world needs today. So let's dive in. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? Who's Ravi? Yeah, no, thank you so much for the kind introduction, Maria, and uh, it's great to be on your show. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I just want to add that uh, I guess some key general comments about my background. Yeah, I would say I was very much part of the first wave of globalization, being a little bit older, uh, being an immigrant, uh, having had the opportunity to live and work in many places. So, you know, that's a key part of my story. You know, uh, in that sense, I'm very much a, a refugee. The second part of my story, I think, is um, that I started off working for big companies for the first 10 years of my career. So in that sense, I followed a conventional corporate path. 
And uh, that was both uh, rewarding, uh, but at times also frustrating uh, and very educational and helped shape me, I think, uh, in many ways from my later experiences. And the other key aspect, I think, of my background is that, as you alluded to, uh, I am a very entrepreneurial person. So, you know, I've managed to um, start about four or five companies. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think, probably my truest calling in life, really. And I was probably born to be an entrepreneur. And in that sense, I feel like I'm more in my element today than when I started my career. So those are three key aspects that I just wanted to, to touch on. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's awesome. And and um, I'm really looking forward to jump into the conversation and pick your brain a little bit. So you said you started off in the corporate world for 10 years, and obviously it is another mindset. It's another attitude. And I tend to call it as well. It's about sometimes feeling good rather than doing good when it comes to social, environmental and governance issues. As what happens is uh, not linked, if you want, to, to the to, to the reality of, of things. It's uh, it's not linked to the work that can be done as well, when in actual fact, there are many opportunities linked to, to the world of profit anyway. It might sound harsh, but, but this is how it is. So what's been the attitude or the evolution of attitudes from your experience in, um, in the corporate world? Yeah, well, I have to say that the corporate world that I encountered uh, in the 1990s Uh, is very different probably in some ways to the corporate world today. And certainly in my field, investment banking, that the organizations, I think, have evolved with the times. But in the 1990s, it was still a fairly traditional, you know, very hard-nosed sort of environment. And I grew up in that environment, you know. And uh, on the one hand, I had some great mentors, uh, worked on some great transactions, had some great experiences, enjoyed some success. But to your point on feelings, you know, I have to say that when I went home from work uh, many days or when I finished uh, client meetings and reflected on those meetings, you know, I have to say that many times I, I didn't have good feelings. You know, I felt uh, angry. I felt frustrated. I felt uh, I wasn't really part of the overall sort of culture, not because anyone treated me badly or didn't give me opportunities. It's not like that. I was very fortunate. But somehow, you know, I just felt that many things were not right, you know? So even though I was doing reasonably well, I always had this sort of feeling of unease. And then, you know, of course, as you become an entrepreneur, uh, as you grow older, you know, you reflect and try to understand what caused that unease. But I realized that uh, in a hard-nosed industry like finance, it's a winner-take-all, you know, it's a very aggressive, uh, money-oriented sort of culture. And I realized that that was part of the problem. And I realized also that this whole process of making money, you know, somehow felt a little bit dehumanizing, you know, to me. And that if that becomes sort of the biggest goal of society and of companies in general, that somehow it's not very edifying. You know, it's a bit of an ugly sort of experience, Darwinistic. And uh, I think that really is sort of at, at the root cause of a lot of the changes I made, you know, after the corporate experience. So you touched on this actually moment. Uh, I, I, 
I, I did. I did. You know, I think the one thing about my background, I've always been into literature and drama and mm-hmm. art and culture. So I always had a little bit of an artistic, yeah. uh, you know, literary sort of streak. So I think those types of people naturally just tend to be a little bit more observant. So I didn't keep a diary. You know, it's not like I took notes, but I yeah. took a lot of mental notes. You know, you sort of accumulate many experiences over the years. You deal with all types of clients. You deal with all types of colleagues. You deal, you know, with some different uh, banking institutions with different cultures. So you observe a lot. You you learn a lot, you know. And I think yeah. given the way my personality is, I probably just stored a lot of that, you know, and uh, you reflect on that and you sort it and process it and sort of come to some conclusions about it. So while I was going through it, I had those feelings of unease, but I just got on with the job because I think the culture at that time really was more hierarchical. You didn't question the system, tried to play the system, benefit from the system. You know, it was more after I left that I started really reflecting on it, you know, in more detail. Of course, some thoughtful people go out and write books about it, like the lady who wrote the bestseller last year. I can't remember her name about her time in Silicon Valley and things like that. And, you know, those books become quite successful if you combine sort of literary talents and observation and business knowledge. But what I did was I I filed all that away and started reinventing myself a little bit, you know, tried to become maybe true self. And what was this, um, if you remember, what was this aha moment that made you leave? Was that the main reason why you left? Because we're going to talk about all your work and is completely focused on, you know, you, you want to make a change and a positive change. So, yeah, well, you know, it wasn't that simple. I think that, you know, my career has evolved in different stages. So that first stage was the corporate stage. There was no one aha moment when I decided to leave the corporate world. But I just, it was sort of a a natural sort of evolution, you know, where I just got out of it. My next phase was entrepreneurship. So what I thought was, okay, if I could build my own company, you know, how would I want to do it? How could it be different or better uh, than the corporate experience that I had? So it was very much focused on improving not only products and services, but improving the culture at the companies, you know, and improving the way you serve clients, even the way you select and target clients, you know, and so on. But then the third wave, and this is the wave I'm in right now, is very much about how you could build a business to better serve society and also just be a lot more inclusive with stakeholders, you know? So that's sort of my final stage of development in that sense, you know? So it's not like um, I, I had this burning desire to help society and so on during my corporate time. So maybe I'm a bit slow, but, you know, I would say it evolved over, over these phases. And during my entrepreneurship phase, you know, I also learned a lot of good life lessons and, you know, that I'm implementing now in, in this third phase. Interesting. But one thing I want to ask you, just to put things in into perspective a little bit, 
there are brands that have been sustainable from day one, like Patagonia, right? We, we all know it, that have been bought or some of them haven't, but uh, th- they were built initially on, on ethical principles. So how to transform a company that has not be- been built on ethical principles or, or whatsoever into becoming one? And I just want to clarify one thing, uh, what we're talking about here, just to make sure the audience gets it. It's not about CSR and communication exercises, but it goes way beyond that. Not stuff done on special occasions, but how to embed principles into their brand DNA. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think all of the great entrepreneurial stories, you know, around sustainable business like Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's and Stonyfield Farms, the common denominator in all of those stories is really the founder or the founding team, you know? So I think it starts from the top. That's a cliche, but it's very, very true in the sustainable business world. So I think like anything, if you have that type of ethos and you believe in taking care of your stakeholders, you believe in taking care of the environment and so on, then you will build a business that does that because it's a very high priority and a high value for your business. You want your business to do well in the traditional sense of profitability, value, and so on. But you're also very focused on building the business the right way and certainly uh, on setting up a governance system, setting up a code within the company that does that. And The founders also are the transmission channel. So, you know, they become great communicators. They often are great communicators and they can sell that vision and ethos to their employees, but also to the outside, right? So that's the common denominator in those cases. But what you're saying is how do you take, say, a large corporate, going back to the corporate world, and, you know, take a very large kind of oil tanker and uh, suddenly maneuver it in a different direction. That is a very, very difficult undertaking that seems to be beyond most of these big companies, you know, beyond greenwashing, the occasional CSR effort and all that. There are good examples of how that's been done, but at a large corporate, it takes massive buy-in from many, many different parts of the firm, okay? So you need a very strong leader who could go office by office, department by department, and really begin to change the culture in a sustainable direction. There are good case studies. I mean, Unilever is a great example. You know, I think when Paul Pullman took over and even a bit before he came in, they realized that a lot of the product lines they were in, you know, They weren't really in keeping with the sustainable ethos, neither in terms of the quality of ingredients and so on. So they really implemented a top-down, firm-wide sort of culture change uh, in terms of how to implement sustainability and integrate it into all parts of the organization. You know, Danone has done that a bit. Nestle is doing that a little bit. Uh, There are some interesting examples of very dirty companies in heavy industry, mining and so on, you know, that have now become clean and their purveyors more of green energy and they change their culture and employee treatment, labor treatment. So there are some examples, but I found in those cases, they tend to play out over a long period of time. 
it's a slow and steady sort of improvement. And usually it's a very strong CEO who has enough credibility to work over a long period of time with different parts of the organization, you know, but uh, that is very much really the minority right now. Yeah, I would say. If you do some research, you don't find much more, basically. It helps educate others as well. But willingness is uh, is difficult because, as, as you rightly said, you know, you, you're talking about the CEOs and the C-levels. But it, I think if you go lower in the pyramid, I, I don't like those terms, but this is how it works in, in the corporate world. Um, you might get buy-in easier from the, the lower part of, of the pyramid, but how to convince the top. So I, I don't think, yeah, there isn't a magical formula or a magic sauce for it. But you gave these examples of um, those companies doing stuff. How to measure this? Is this where you come in? Can, well, the company can, that we're building, RIM, uh, yeah. is very focused on sustainability measurement, sustainability yeah. KPIs, analytics, benchmarking versus peers, sustainability reporting, uh, and also sustainability solutions. Yeah, uh, but uh, measuring it is, you know, quite a feat and, and quite difficult to do um, because you can get the data to say almost anything. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so... We try to take a very empirical methodological approach where we first try to define industry by industry, what sustainability factors are material. This is the starting point because, you know, typically a lot of sustainability questionnaires and assessments tend to be very broad, uh, tend to be very checklist formulaic and often do not capture the most relevant sustainability factors for a certain company or industry. So we use media materiality tests where we look at what stakeholders are saying are their most important issues around sustainability. We look at financial materiality tests where we see what sustainability performance factors impact financial performance the most. Uh, of course, we also look at global standards and global experts in terms of what they're saying, GRI, TCFD, SASB. So we first develop a materiality methodology. Then we distill it down to the essential questions. Once the company answers those questions, then we go about analyzing their performance. We analyze it on an absolute basis, on a relative basis compared to their peers. And then it creates what we call a gap analysis, where then you will see what the gaps are overall in their sustainability performance. And then we make recommendations and help them implement solutions to fix those gaps. So we're not interested in greenwashing. We're not interested in giving them a high score or a low, low score that they can go publicize. We're not interested in letting them cherry pick and select you know, some of their good aspects and go publicize it. We are giving them a very honest 360 degree view of their sustainability performance. And what we found is that this is a very multi-period sort of exercise. You know, this is not something that you just do and, you know, you fill it in, you get the report and you go home. You know, this is something that, as we talked about with the big companies, it takes continuous time, continuous investment and continuous commitment you know, to really improve in a genuine way. 
So uh, yeah, that's sort of how we built uh, RIM. Okay, and is it an automated process or is it combined with consulting? Um, it's 80% automated, okay. 20% consulting. I okay. think the consulting part would really only be for very high touch clients, but automation is the key to scale. You know, our tagline is sustainability for all. This is sort of the social impact we want to have through automation, through big data, through AI. Mm-hmm. If we can give all companies in the world, big and small, sustainability assessments, sustainability diagnostics, and help with achieving their sustainability goals and how they think about sustainability through education, you know, solutions and so on. This is our aim. So that means we have to be low cost. That means we have to be automated and we have to be scalable. I have a couple of questions here. Obviously, I do like what you're doing. I mean, the topic is is fascinating because there's so much to be done, but it's very challenging as well. Um, three questions here. How to hold them accountable as uh, a company? I guess the process is also different for a corporation and for a startup. And also, how do you gather the data across the um, supply chain as well? Because they could just tell you anything. So is it on the blockchain somehow? How, How can you verify all that? Yeah, those are good questions. So for smaller companies, we tend to be less specialized in the sustainability questions. Because the reality is they do not have a very long history or a very big sustainability footprint. So what we do is we ask 25 general questions about governance, about impact, about sustainability policies. They tend to be more qualitative than quantitative. Uh, But what we also do is we ask them, why are you interested in sustainability? What type of use would you like to get out of sustainability? Would you like to qualify for green finance? Would you like to qualify to be a certified supplier? Are you just interested because of social impact and doing good in general? You know, so once they tick the use case and once they answer the questions, then we identify the gaps. So we say, if you really want to use it to get green finance, We see four or five gaps. You really will not qualify for green finance today because you haven't undertaken this implementation or appointed this person to do this or set up um, a data tracking sort of service for key metrics and things like that, right? So then we help them identify the gaps and fix that through our RIM certification process, which we combine with expert education and some implementation, right? So for larger companies, we would ask many more questions, more detailed, specific questions. Many of them would be quantitative and so on. But we don't like to say there are good performers and bad performers. For us, you know, it's a bit like uh, the reincarnation model. You know, everyone eventually makes it. So we take a more positive view and we try to say, okay, you didn't do so well. This is how you can improve. And then come back and take the diagnostic again, the assessment again, so you can improve. So for larger companies, we use the same gap analysis, as I described earlier, you know, based on the questionnaire and the analytics. And then we try to help them, you know, make some implementations around that area. In terms of supply chain, we do ask questions about supply chain. 
and we do try to get some third-party data about their supply chain. But what we do is often this is an area for the follow-up assessment. So once we give the recommendations and we suggest implementations, let's say supply chain audit is an area that they didn't answer the questions in a comprehensive way or they answered they don't do it. Then we say, listen, that's a problem in your industry because it's a huge reputational risk for you. You need to understand what your suppliers are doing on their labor practices, their environmental practices. So what we do is we tell them, first, answer five, 10 more questions on your suppliers in general. And then we say, if we still are not satisfied, we say, you need to do something called the RIM stakeholder map analysis. So you can analyze different stakeholders in your ecosystem. So suppliers are a big stakeholder, right? So what we do is we then give them a specific supplier questionnaire, which they can send to all their suppliers to answer. And once they answer that, we work with them to see, look, there are gaps here, there are gaps there. You need to address that very quickly to fix your supply chain, to make it cleaner. Yeah. So a lot of our analytics and a lot of our recommendations is kind of incremental, right? So we don't try to kind of pile it all on at the beginning. We try to see what areas they're interested in and also how they answer the questions. Okay. Uh, Interesting. It's iterative as well in the sense that... uh, Yeah. Like I said, this is a multi-period, long sort of gestation sort of thing. We don't believe in quick fixes. We don't believe in greenwashing. We're not out there to issue PR reports for companies. You know, it's uh, substantive stuff. We try to really get into it. And, you know, uh, we tell people, look, uh, you you really need to sign up for at least one year to really make any progress. And probably you need to keep signing up, right? Over many years. And no, it's interesting because you touched on the culture at the end of the day, if they're joining you, it's because they want to. So the element of trust uh, would be there because they want to, to do that. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are also what I would call utilitarian types of companies. So they might use us, but only for a specific need. A good example is sustainability reporting on stock exchanges. So if they're a listed company, many exchanges require they file a sustainability report. Many of these companies don't care about sustainability. They're not really even interested in how the report looks. They just want to meet the requirement. So we do have a product called RIM Exchange. So we could help a listed company, you know, follow a certain format based on the exchange they're listed on and meet the qualification for that exchange. So it's nothing more than filling out, you know, the questionnaire and then getting a PDF report, which they send to the exchange. These are people who may not want to engage beyond that, but you do have to cover different sorts of use cases around sustainability. There's no one size fits all. Yeah, and they might get converted over time as well. So Exactly. But we joke internally about what we call the five shades of sustainability, you know, where (laughs) we've seen, you know, all cases from those who don't care to those who use it opportunistically and selectively to greenwash, to those who genuinely care for it. We even yeah. did little cartoons uh, in which I can send you like little images for the five shades of sustainability. 
So, okay. um, you know, sometimes the clients like that. Certainly our team likes that. Can we share a link? Uh, uh, yes, on the I, podcast? I can send that to you. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll share it in the description for whoever wants to check it out because it's, it's an important topic. It can be uh, an educational process as well to start with humor. So why not? Exactly. Uh, I, I want to move back into startups a little bit and the investing world because we touched on on the startups as well saying that obviously their mindset is different for them to adapt anyway but when they start something you know they want to change people's lives in a certain way which uh, is a part of you know it's when you talk about people you talk about the environment and everything else so there are also dedicated ESG funds and ESG indexes. But I want to read something I uh, took from BlackRock, which is an investment management firm. And it says that all its funds will be ESG compliant. And this is the spill from their website. Sustainable investing is about investing in progress and recognizing that companies solving the world's biggest challenges can be best positioned to grow. It's about pioneering better ways of doing business and creating the momentum to encourage more and more people to opt into the future we're working to create. So as a large investor, you know, BlackRock inspires others, also, of course. So what are the attitudes on sustainable and responsible investing? And how do you define this shift on ma of mindsets? And don't forget that we're living in a pandemic time. It's still, you know, we're still in the middle of it. So how did the COVID accelerate this trend as well, if we can call it trend? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, we have to break it down into some components. I mean, uh, if you talk about the public equities uh, fund management uh, market, yeah, I mean, the ESG investment category is the fastest growing category right now in public equities and public debt. Uh, even during COVID, you know, the assets under management went way up. And of course, BlackRock is the world's largest fund manager. Like you said, they are very influential in setting an ESG agenda. And, you know, it's a nice sentiment that they have. But the ESG uh, public equities model, public debt model is, is deeply flawed in many ways, right? Maybe partially because it's still early days. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, there are a lot of very disturbing aspects of that. So number one, you know, BlackRock is primarily a passive fund manager, you know, as you know, uh, as opposed to active. And that's problematic because if they really are putting sustainability front and center on the agenda, but yet they outsource the government, you know, to various uh, yes. share service firms and so on, then how can they really affect change? You know, sure, they may select a portfolio that's sustainable. Okay. Maybe they can improve their investment criteria for investing in companies, but once they invest, it's not that simple. Companies don't just follow ESG agendas uh, and are sustainable, you know, every day of the year, they always will encounter problems and issues, right? And then what happens if you're a passive fund manager? What do you say if you're BlackRock, right? Not much, right? So that's problematic. And then the more active ESG fund managers, if you observe their portfolios and look at their top five holdings or top 10 holdings, the irony is they are the same as other big non-ESG fund managers. So, you know, if you look at, like, say, Generation Asset Management, which is a big London-based, you know, 
ESG manager, a lot of their holdings are just big tech companies, you know, like Amazon, Google, or whatever. Now, how do they determine, right, what is really sustainable? It's true they have experienced people. It's true they do a lot of third-party research. But the reality is they still rely on a lot of public sustainability data put out by the big sustainability data providers like MSCI, Refinitiv, and so on. Those companies also provide scores. You know, studies have shown there tend to be no correlation between scores between the different agencies. So, you know, Tesla may get a high score by one and a very low score in another. And the data itself tends to be very selective, flawed, problematic. And they're making investment decisions which don't really seem to differentiate themselves all that much from a normal public equities manager. So I think, you know, there's a lot to be said there about how they select stocks and also if they're active, how they're engaging with these companies to improve their sustainability performance, right? What are they doing? Um, Are they sponsoring resolutions at AGMs to change labor practices, environmental practices? Are they recommending they work with consultants to improve? After all, at the end of the day, they're just one of many shareholders in a big public company. So I think the public equities ESG space has a long way to evolve, quite frankly. It's uh, a little bit of a combination of greenwashing with some sort of semblance of an ESG strategy, you know, a genuine one, okay? Cynics, of course, will say anything they can do to raise more funds and differentiate themselves, you know, ESG is a nice theme or a nice fad, right? So as a startup, guys, it's a bit different. So if you take an impact fund manager and so on, they live because they're meant to invest in earlier stage companies that really are impactful, Right. So they tend to take the ESG impact story more seriously. Uh, you know, they tend to uh, do more due diligence because these are private startup type companies. So they really get stuck in and see how the companies are doing. So you could argue it's better, but then you could also argue, can you really apply a 2% management fee, 20% carry model to impact investing? You know, in other words, can you really generate those kinds of financial returns to satisfy these investors, but also generate the social returns, you know, to satisfy other stakeholders? I think this is very much an open question. You know, I think I always argue in my uh, teaching that there are very, very obvious trade-offs. You cannot be a 20% return company and the best in class in terms of social impact, uh, and so on. You know, you have to make decisions as a manager. And I know this from being an entrepreneur. If you're going to pay your people more, you know, your firm may earn less. Okay, maybe they'll earn more in the long run because your employees are more loyal, more productive. But in the short run, no way. You know, if you invest in uh, taking care of certain social groups, you know, that is a cost. You know, if you price your products cheaper, because you want more people to use it, okay, maybe your revenue will go up on volume, but it may go down on margin, right? So I think the reality is the whole ESG investment space is full of contradictions, conflicts of interest, greenwashing, unsound and undeveloped methodologies. It's got a long way to go. But 
it's okay. I mean, all of this is good because you could say this is kind of 1.0 and there's more awareness around these topics and probably things will get better. Okay. But I'm just saying right now, the first generation, you know, I think there's a, still a long way to go. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like a baby who starts uh, <laughs> dabbling and then starts walking or the first generation of any product. And then you, you start, you get the, the early adopters and then it grows slowly, slowly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and I want to touch on one more thing with you, actually, creating shared values by uh, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer, right? Um, they, they talk about moving beyond corporate social responsibility and taking into consideration the ESGs into their strategies. If a company is not sure about it, and on the other hand, we also have studies that say investing in ESGs or focusing on ESGs means profit as well and returns. What, what, what would you say? How would you convince or try to create awareness for a company to be ESG driven at the core? Well, I don't think we really can lay out one argument. As I said, you know, I think there are different arguments. I think we always say at RIM, companies should focus on sustainability because A, they may be forced to. This is the regulatory argument that why wait for governments to put more and more sustainability regulations around your business, be ahead of the curve, uh, implemented. And that's a fact, you know, that there will be more and more regulations around sustainability because of what's happening with climate change, because uh, labor issues, income inequality is a political hot button issue and so on. So regulation is coming everywhere. So, you know, that's one argument. Another argument that you talked about is saying, it is financially sound, you know, that implementing sustainability will help your numbers in the long run. To be honest, this is something at RIM we're doing a lot of research on, and we're trying to prove that. But so far, I do not have definitive evidence of that. A lot of studies sort of point to that, but they're not that deep and methodologically sound. Uh, so I cannot say for a fact that that is the case, okay? And as I told you, I even believe the opposite, that there could be some trade-offs, maybe. The third use case or the third argument around sustainability is do the right thing, right? So, you know, that is very much the ethos, the morality, you know, the good citizen kind of argument. Look, um, we shouldn't be cynical. And I would say, especially a younger generation of entrepreneur, I think, you know, I definitely see uh, a lot of them wanting to do good. So this is good, you know, and I think uh, something like RIM would appeal to them. A fourth argument is basically that you face reputational risks from stakeholders. So if your company really is just not viewed as a good company, then your customers may turn away from you. Your other stakeholders, like your employees, could leave your firm because they don't believe in your firm's culture and your attitude. We're seeing more and more of that because there's more and more transparency, because there's so much information about companies on social media and so on, even or NGO reports and so on. Even yeah. if the company's not disclosing the sustainability information, it leaks out into the market, right? And yeah. that reputational damage among stakeholders is very serious because this will kill the business, okay? Uh, so we've seen that in many cases, right? 
So I think that that's also another uh, good argument. So you could argue some of the arguments are more negative and some of the arguments are more positive. But I think that's the reality of the situation. You talked about Porter's shared value. I'm not a believer in it. But one thing Porter has done is I think that he has identified probably the most realistic use case for Mm -hmm. large corporates. Large corporates, by and large, are in the CSV mode, okay? CSV doesn't work um, in most cases because it's very rare where win-win situations emerge in business where, oh, my company invested in R&D, we invented a new low-cost product, we opened up a new low-cost segment in India, and you know we made more money and the people in india benefited from the product by living a healthier life or whatever right this is porter's shared value but one in 10 business cases work out like that most business cases have conflict between purpose and profit okay which is why i've always said i think what is closer to the truth is that you probably need trade-offs between profit and purpose. So a company that's more sustainable may have a lower return on investment or a lower profit margin, but investors should still support that company because its overall value, social value and financial value is still higher than a normal company that only focuses on financial value. But how do you get a mindset change amongst company CEOs, uh, amongst fund managers and so on to embrace that. That is very difficult to do, right? But, you know, so CSV is what most of the corporate, large corporate world is. But by definition, that means it's a 10% sustainability sort of story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, those, those are just my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's why we're talking to have your thoughts. So that's cool. I want to touch on two things here that you mentioned, because it's absolutely true that uh, at the end of the day, it's the consumers who make the decision. As you said, social media today, if you say um, a simple example, you go to a restaurant, if you say or tell your neighbor that you didn't like it, it ends here. Or this is how it used to, to be in the past. But today, if you just share it on social media, it would go viral. Well, until today, because what's happening today in the world, <laughs> I don't know where we're heading to, you know, banning everyone and everything. I mean, I, I'm questioning it right now because it might change. We don't know. And the other part to it is the younger generation. They also make decisions based on, on the company as well. But also I read an interesting article on the Financial Times, if, if you, I think last year or so, it's about the younger generation who inherited money. They need better advice to invest in sustainability and so on because they want to do that. that but often they don't know how to do that because they cannot ask their parents how to do it. Yeah, that's an interesting theme. The baby boomer generation has passed on a lot of wealth to the millennial and Gen Z generations. And that generation is a lot more uh, environmentally conscious, socially conscious. And at the same time, they're growing in purchasing power. So we do see very different patterns of consumption. Um, And you're right that, you know, what what people say is they've gone away from being passive consumers to being active collaborators in the way a product or service is developed and sold and consumed. 
So uh, I think that generation in particular, and because they're social media savvy, you know, they have the ability to disrupt a lot of businesses uh, that are viewed as not being sustainable or on the right side of history. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's a very fascinating and evolving space. And there's no question about, yeah, that that will change the way companies will have to operate. Yeah. In the sustainability sphere. Cool. No, th thank you so much. I uh, I really enjoyed, you know, what we were talking about. I think uh, we can go on and go on. I'm looking forward to checking out RIM as well. By the way, what does RIM stand for? Well, it's funny, you know, we we make it stand for quite a few things. It's okay. kind of our little joke internally. So some people say real impact matters most. Some people say it stands for reporting, integration, measurement and monitoring. You know, some people say it's kind of like the Pacific Rim because we're based, you know, here in Singapore in the Pacific Rim. So... Uh, I think what's nice is we want it to mean different things. Another important meaning is RIM is a circle. And, you know, for us, the sustainability journey, as I said, it's endless circles. So it starts with understanding your sustainability needs, taking the assessment, getting the diagnostic and the analytics, acting on the recommendations and implementing and repeating. So RIM also is very much, you know, a circle. So, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. And anything else you want to add? Uh, you know, thank you so much for having me on and very happy to continue, uh, you know, in, in the future and we'll send you some of these materials. Cool. Thank you so much. This episode with Ravi Shidambaram comes to an end. We spoke about the ESGs, ESG scoring, responsible investing, mindsets and much more. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with anyone who can benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.